Third time's the charm. There we go. Let's take our Bibles and read from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. For the word of God is, is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The word of God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid, and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And the sermon's going to focus on verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, and we read about the high priest, it's been several weeks now, but back in chapter 2 of Hebrews, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, that is Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. He says in chapter 2, a high priest who has been made like us in every respect, except for one, and that is, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Thomas Brooks was a Puritan pastor in the early 17th century. He delivered a series of sermons to his congregation in London on the, the nature of temptation and Christians' battle with temptation Those sermons are published today in a little Puritan paperback entitled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, which is a great little title. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's been in print now continuously for four centuries, so one might imagine that there's some good material in there. The analogy that he uses for temptation, he refers to temptation. He says, temptation is bait on a hook. It's nothing more or nothing less than bait It's bait on a hook. He says, Satan will bait your hook with whatever it is that will entice you to bite. Some hooks will have food on it. Other hooks will have sex, fame, money, power, glory, boyfriend, girlfriend, security, comfort, whatever it is, achievement, job. He'll put bait on a hook And then once you've bitten, he will set the hook and reel you towards death. That's the image he gives. Uh, The wages of sin is death. And and we know, I mean, you're just going further and further into deeper manifestations uh, and experiences of death. But Satan is crafty, Brooks goes on. He says that that Satan would never come to us and say that I want you to experience divorce or drunkenness or sexual addiction or drug addiction or absentee fatherhood or or any kinds of... He'll never say that I want your family to disintegrate and for that to have lasting effects down through many generations. Because if he baited the hook that way, nobody would ever bite. And so that's why he always puts happiness on the end of the hook. And he always says that uh, at the very least, if you eat this, you'll be a little less miserable than uh, tomorrow than you are today. 
Some of you can really relate to that image because you know, you know that you, you are on the hook. Um, I mean, every one of us takes the hook at some time or another, but, but some of us are very, very actively right now being reeled into death. And I want to speak especially to you. I want to speak to everybody, of course, as a sermon, but especially to, to you. And especially, I want you to consider this question. What are your instincts toward God at those moments when you know you are on the hook? What, what do you expect to receive from God when you've taken it taking the hook again and again, do you expect God to move towards you in compassion, in patience? Uh, Do you expect him to be empathetic to you? I mean, no, more more often than not, we expect God to be deeply disappointed and angry with us, and that's why we instinctively recoil away from God. We withdraw away from God and away from God's people In our moments of temptation, when we have blown it and we have made a mess of our lives, uh, instinctively, we we flee. Obviously, we flee. Our passage this morning tells us a couple of things. It tells us that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, understands weakness. It tells us, secondly, that he knows what it's like to be tempted. And it tells us that our instincts are entirely wrong. They're so wrong. And therefore, we should, we should expect God to move toward us in empathy and, and not, as our instincts tell us, in cold, shunning condemnation. But he will move toward us in empathy. I love how this translation of, of the Bible, I think it's NIV that I selected this week, how it translates verse 15. Some of the older translations of verse 15 speak, to, uh, speak of us having a sympathetic high priest. But you notice here that this says that we have an empathetic high priest. It leads to the, what is the difference between sympathy and empathy? Is there anything significantly different about the two? And absolutely there is. The way that I would characterize the difference is sympathy. Sympathy is good. Genuine, true sympathy It comes to us and says, I am so sorry about your cancer diagnosis. True sympathy says, not in a patronizing manner, but I am so so sorry that you are having to go through this. But that's very different than somebody else who comes to you and says, I am so sorry. I was diagnosed six six months ago as well. I I know the devastation of what it's like to, to hear those words from the doctor. I, I know. I am so so sorry. It's the difference between I'm so sad to hear about your divorce versus my husband left me too. I know the devastation that you are going through. Empathy is one of the greatest things that human beings can give to one another. It's one of the most, one of the most powerful forces that we ever experience in this life. I think empathy was one of the reasons why your 12-step programs, your AA or SAA or NA, why they're so, so powerfully effective is you walk into a room and sit in a circle, you're face-to-face with people who are, who are there in your shoes. They know exactly what it's like to go through the hell of addiction. They're walking through that valley 
right now, or in the case of a sponsor, you not only have somebody who understands you, but you have somebody who's made it through on the other side. True empathy is, is not only having somebody who understands you, but somebody who is stronger than you, who has more hope than you, that has more resources than you, who can actually not only say, I'm so sorry and grieve with you, but help lead you through the other side. That, friends, is what Jesus Christ is to us. He is an empathetic high priest. Jesus, he understands our weakness. He understands our temptation. One of the ways that I have um, uh, heard it referred to is Jesus knew the full weight of temptation. It's kind of like if you have 10 men who are walking down a road into a very stiff headwind. Let's say that there's a 70-mile-an-hour headwind blowing uh, on them. All ten, And nine of the guys fall down in the first couple minutes of, of walking, but, but one of the ten ends up walking all the way through the wind all the way to his home, which of those men understands the wind the best? Who knows the power of the wind? If you have two guys, uh, if you take Dustin Bogan and I, or Robbie Bogan, we're going to go to the gym and and bench press together. And I decide, you know, I'm feeling pretty strong today. I'm going to get under the the bar with with, uh, Robbie, and I'm going to just do the weight that he's doing. And he's got 345s on both sides of it. And I lift it up, he's spotting me, and boop, you know, it comes. Who understands the full weight of the bar, the man who can lift it or the man who cannot? Jesus Christ, he understands the, the full weight of temptation. Here's what C.S. Lewis, quote, A silly idea is current among some folks that, that says that good people, good people do not know what temptation means. But actually, the opposite is the case. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Only those who try to to resist temptation even begin to know how truly strong it is. And that is why, he goes on, that is why in, in one sense bad people know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows, who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only complete realist. He's the only complete realist. He's been, he understands temptation a whole lot better than you and I do. I went through the gospel this week uh, and just was looking for possible examples of, of temp, Jesus under experiencing and undergoing temptation. Obviously, he was tempted during his 40 days in the, in the wilderness, but what, what other ways was Jesus tempted? He was tempted to lie. He, he could have lied at the end of his life and made it out, gone free. It baffles me how quickly and easily I lie. Do you ever notice that about yourself? You'll find yourself distorting the truth just a little bit, and you didn't even need to lie, but it, you're so accustomed to, to lying. And he was tempted to lie, and he didn't. He was tempted to steal. I, I think he was tempted to steal. His dad died when he was young. His mom was poor. They didn't have Remember, they, all they could do was offer the sacrifice of a turtle dove in the temple. And that was when his dad was still alive. Well, he, who's the breadwinner? 
And then his dad's, his dad's gone. I'm sure he was tempted to steal. I'm sure he was tempted to covet other people's, the kids who had more than, than he did. I, I'm, I'm sure he was tempted to, to take revenge when he was so falsely accused. Think about how mad it makes us when somebody either says something publicly about us that's just wrong. It's, it's false. They slander us, gossip about us. That makes you so mad, and you just want to take revenge and stab them right back and stab them in their back. He was tempted to lust. He's a man. Of course he was tempted to lust. And he, he was tempted to grumble against God. Not only was he frustrated, probably, at times with how things were going. I mean, don't you think he was tempted to grumble when John the Baptist was decapitated? at the whims of a, of a dancing teenage girl, you go through and you start reading the Gospels. You see there's so many different places that he was likely tempted, and yet, and yet he made it through. He lived the life of a true, authentic man and walked with God through the same troubled pathways that we do, tempted in all the same ways that we are. And Well, well buddy, was God. That's, that's the immediate objection that we make. Well, he, he was God, and because he was God, he was able. No, 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 no. The Bible never actually, it never argues that way. In fact, the scriptures indicate that he never cheated. He never used his divine nature to somehow get out of temptation. He never used his divine nature to make his life any easier. If you remember, one of the temptations during the 40 days in the wilderness was to use your divine nature to make life a little bit easier. Tell these stones to turn into bread. But he never did that. And he never did that with any of the temptations that he faced in this life. I mean, the way that Jesus Christ made it through is the exact same way that you and I do, that by by trusting God and praying, reading our Bibles and memorizing and, and putting up the fight. Well, somebody else will say, well, maybe he was tempted, but he's never experienced the sorrows that I've experienced. But that is true. He, he's never experienced a miscarriage. No, he, he hasn't. He's never experienced being paralyzed from the waist down and living the rest of your life in a wheelchair. He's never been weak in some of the specific ways that we are. And that's true. But, I, but, but hasn't he experienced something similar at its core? All of our experiences, kind of the external experiences of suffering, they can differ from person to person. In fact, we are so unique. I mean, every one of us is truly like a snowflake. There's no two of us who are identical. I would assume that, that even all of our experiences of suffering are, are themselves unique. Even two people who experience paralysis don't experience it exactly the same, the same way, but they experience the same, the same core, the same pain the same disappointment at at its core. And this has led theologian Raymond Brown to say, arguably nobody nobody on earth before or since has ever had to go through such spiritual desolation and anguish as he did. He knows it at its core. He's aware because he's experienced the full pressures and anguish of life in this godless world. He knows what it's like to be tempted 
He gets what it's like to, to be weak. Later on, we get into Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. We discover, uh, we discover this about Jesus Christ. When God came into the world, he did not come into this world as Superman with nerves of steel. He came into this world, Hebrews 5, 7, during the, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. With loud cries and tears. Not just little drips from his eyes, but you know, ah, type of tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He was not heard because he happened to be the second member of the Trinity. He was heard because he was crying out to God as a man just like you and me. He was heard because he was submitting himself to the Father. All of this builds to the idea that Jesus Christ knows our situation, not because he is God, not because he is omniscient. He knows our situation because, he, because of his humanity, because he's one of us, because he is you and me. He knows, and it leads to the most incredible idea, I think, in, in, all, of, in all of the world of religions today, Ours alone is an empathetic God. There's no other, empath- no, no other religion in the world today has an empathetic God who can say, I walked in your, in your, shoes, your shoes and in your steps. I mean, it's, Allah is not an empathetic God. I mean, even Yahweh of Judaism is not, an, is not the empathetic God, but, but Jesus is. So then let's move on to what difference does this make? If you really synthesize this this passage, if you really believe this passage, then let me show what would happen to you. First of all, and I alluded to this near the beginning of the sermon. First of all, you you would go to Jesus with your shame when you feel shame and self-loathing, and and you're honestly ashamed to yourself that... of yourself that the hook is in your mouth, you would go toward Jesus at those moments if you really believed that he was an empathetic high priest. And you would find relief if you did so. Dr. Brene Brown is a professor of, I think, psychology at the University of Houston. She became an instant YouTube, YouTube sensation when in 2010 she posted a TED Talk, well, she delivered a TED Talk entitled the power of vulnerability. Anybody? It's like 28 million page views. Yeah, Brene Brown, uh, she's a very articulate woman. And I am definitely not endorsing everything that she says. She's, she's coming from an entirely secular vantage point. But she, she says, if you were to take shame and take your shame and put your shame in a Petri dish, you were to cover that shame in darkness and secrecy, and you were to feed that shame with self-loathing and self-contempt. What do you think is going to happen? It, it's just going to, it, it, you know, all the bacteria colonies just expand exponentially. But she says, but if you bathe that Petri dish with empathy, it will kill it. I thought that was interesting. If you, if you bathe, this is a secular person saying, if you will bathe your shame with empathy, it will kill it. That sounds a whole lot to me like the gospel of grace, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, 
If you will bathe your shame in the gospel of grace, it will kill it. Maybe you heard the news this week. Tim Keller is stepping down as, as pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. That was big news for us in the Presbyterian world. I think it's big news for, for any Christian. I, I mean, in my opinion, he's the, uh, he's the, be- the greatest English-speaking, English-speaking preacher of, of the last half century. Now, you've heard me quote him so many times. There's times when I'm quoting him, and you don't even know that I'm quoting him because uh, I get tired of saying his name. I have so much respect for him. I, my respect actually even grew more for him when I found out that Redeemer has been operating on a 20-year plan, 20 years now, of, of making themselves less and less about Tim Keller and, uh, and more and more about actual local churches. Erin is in New York City today, and I'm extremely jealous because she, she and Karen are going to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I'm just hoping, I'm hoping she gets to hear Tim Keller preach, but they don't know if they will because nobody knows where Keller's going to preach. They, don't, they never tell their sites where he's going to show up because um, they don't want it to, they haven't wanted to, to be a cult of personality. I mean, they could totally take Tim Keller and pipe him in on a big screen to 17 different places in New York City, and you'd have a mega church of 20,000 people. But, but that, was never, that was never what he or they thought that they ought to be about. One of his assistant pastors ended up posting a tribute to him online this week. And here's what stood out to me that, that he said about Tim Keller, if I can find it in the... In my notes, he, he said that, quote, Tim is one of the best examples I have ever seen of covering shame with the gospel. In my five years of serving under his leadership, never once did I see him tear another person down, either to their face or on the internet or through gossip, but instead he seemed to cover every people's flaws with, everyone's flaws and sins with grace. In other words, he was an empathetic priest. To other people. And that's what Jesus wants to be for us. Have you really thought of it in, those, in the terms of, of an empathetic priest? Number two, if you believe that, then when your life is, is breaking apart, you would go towards Jesus and, and not a, away from him. Which is, again, not our instincts. I've been pastoring for 15 years now, and when I, I know that when somebody stops, stops showing up for church on Sunday morning, if they're not going to another church, but, but if they're not going to any other church at all, they just stop showing up at All Saints, usually it's one of two things. Either they've, they've fallen into some sin, and the hook is in, and they're ashamed, or they're going through some very hard times of suffering and trial, and they're angry with God and don't want to be around God. I don't want to pray to God. I don't want to worship God. I don't want to be near God. They don't realize. You don't realize. We don't realize. That is a denial of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Because if you really believed that he was a human, truly authentically human high priest who understands what we have been going through, that, that would make you want to, we always want to, when we're suffering, we always want to come uh, uh, beside somebody who understands, who understands me. Here's a God who underst- 
understands me. I may not understand. I may not understand why I'm suffering as I am in this life. But what I know is that he understands me. He gets me. Going back to Brene Brown for a second. She said, a truly empathetic response. Again, it's one of the most wonderful things we can receive from another human being. She said, true empathy never begins with two words. It never begins with the words, at least. What does she mean by that? She said, my mother died of cancer just the, in the last, uh, uh, the last couple, uh, a year ago. And uh, I confided with family and friends about this. And some of them tried to be sympathetic. They said, you know, your mom died. Well, at least, at least you still have a father. Your mom died. Well, at least she's not suffering anymore. You went through a miscarriage. Well, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. Well, at least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. And that's what we, we, we try to be sympathetic we, by creating the silver lining <laughs> that kind of makes it all better. But that doesn't make it any better. And our empathetic priest will never respond to us that way when we are in our moments of greatest weakness and suffering. Thirdly, and finally, and here's how I know that's the case. It's verse 16. Look with me, verse 16, let's read it. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In a book that has so many wonderful turns of phrases, this might be, might be the best. We get to approach an oxymoron, <laughs> a throne of grace. What do we associate with a throne? Normally, we associate power, rule, justice, authority. But this is a throne of mercy, tenderness, <laughs> patience, compassion. This is a throne of grace. You get to go to a, th- a throne of grace. Next time you bow your head and you're praying to God, you should just chuckle to yourself. <laughs> Who am I to be in the throne of throne room of God? Why in the world would God be listening to me? I know I don't even listen to me. <laughs> that I might come into a throne room of grace. <laughs> but we can draw near the some the author of Hebrews says with confidence because because the one on the throne knows what it's like to have tears running down his cheek. He knows what it's like to experience loss. He knows the very number of the hairs on your head, and he keeps all of your tears in his bottle, and he says that I love you more than you love yourself. To conclude, brothers and sisters, don't make the mistake that some Christians have made of, quote, imagining that Jesus is the Sunday school books that we've pictured him in as this beautifully tan, glowing, sort of porcelain-looking, white-clothes, glistening figure who's hovering about six feet above the grass. His heart does go out completely to you because he he is a man who's acquainted with suffering and grief. Hebrews 2.18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted and suffering. 